Hi, everyone, and welcome back to When the World Falls podcast. I am your host, Teresa, and this is our second episode in our Doe Diaries mini-series where we are looking at unidentified individuals in hopes of helping or at least raising awareness of these individuals and potentially helping reconnect them to their their names and identity um, and really just working on kind of bringing awareness of how many people still remain lost and the fact that there is obviously someone missing them. People just don't appear from out of nowhere, right? They obviously came from somewhere and there's obviously family missing and caring about them. Um, sorry for the delay in getting this episode out to you guys. It's been a month of chaos and anarchy, so I'm glad to be back and hopefully getting back on a regular schedule. I'm slowly getting more organized with this, so hopefully I will have some audio and an intro going on for the next episode. Fingers crossed. Um, for today, we're actually going to do three different stories for you guys. Uh, we're going to do Little Miss Lake Panascoffy from the States in 1971, Little Lord Fauntroy, who is also from the States from 1921, and the boy in the box from 1957 who has recently been in the media i did want to get the story out before um december 8th which is tomorrow so i'm recording this on december 7th as tomorrow we will be having an announcement by philadelphia pd about the identity of the boy in the box which is quite exciting um but we will start out with the other two and we'll leave the little the boy in the box for last again apologies if i pronounce names wrong it's please feel free to correct me love to get I think names are important things so if I'm not saying things right let me know um but anyways we will start with little Miss Lake Panascoffy from Sumter County in Florida so she was found on February 19th 1971 and as as of today December 7th 2022 she has been unidentified for over 51 years So on February 19th, 1971, two hitchhikers discovered a body floating under an overpass in Lake Panascoffy. The body was identified as that of a young girl wearing a green shirt, a green plaid pants, and a green floral poncho. She was also wearing a white gold watch and a gold necklace. Her autopsy was conducted by Dr. William Schutz, and he did a forensic... um, examination that showed that she had been killed approximately 30 days before her body was found, so putting her date of death at June 15th. A man's belt, size 36, was also found around her neck, implying that her cause of death had been strangulation. There, At that time, there was no further evidence made, so the case went cold quite quickly. Then, in 1986, her body was, re- was exhumed, and she was re-examined, which resulted in the belief of her being between 17 and 24 years old and having weighed approximately 115 pounds. Uh, She had brown hair, prominent cheekbones, and was between 5'2 and 5'5. Some of these information would have come from the initial autopsy, while the others were done in the second autopsy. 
During the second examination, it appeared that she'd had extensive dental work done, including silver fillings and a porcelain crown on an upper right tooth. The examination also determined that she had had at least two children before her death, and one rib was fractured around the time of her death, perhaps from the killer kneeling on her as he strangled her. Um, when we talk about an individual being identified as having had more than one child before the, or having had a child it's because the fact that when a woman has a child her hips and pelvis change and so then a forensic pathologist are able to determine this um through examination however there are some limitations because there have been stories of individuals who have had this like pitting that develops when you give birth um but their pitting developed from either going through puberty or other factors um there is another case I'm hoping that we'll cover, which is of a trans woman who, who was murdered in Florida as well. And she was initially identified as being a woman who had had children because her hips had also had that pitting. However, from um, further examination where it was determined that she had actually been um, genetically male at, at birth, the assumption was that her use of estrogen hormones had actually caused the pitting in her hips, which had caused the, um, the assumption of her having had children prior to her death. Anyways, back to the story. So while initially thought to be of either European or indigenous descent, a further examination, again done after, re after an ex examination in 2012, provided that the lead isotopes indicated that her at childhood and adolescence were spent in Southern Europe close to the sea. And she had remained there until about a year before her death. So she was obviously a very recent immigrant, a very recent immigrant or visitor to the United States. Further study by geological scientist George Kamenov pinpointed the location as being Lorium, Greece. An exam of her hairs, lines, and her bones, um, which is like kind of like a growth lines that we see, indicated illness or malnutrition that briefly slowed her growth in childhood. There is speculation that due to the time of her death and the large Greek American population in Tarpon Springs, which was 170 kilometers or 73 miles from the location where she was found, she may have come to the United States to celebrate Epiphany, um, which would have occurred shortly around the time of her death. And the isotope and forensic examination supported that she had been in the States for less than two months. So there was, so that would have mean that she would have been in the States arriving like Dece like November, December-ish, maybe October, depending on when she had passed, when she, when she was murdered. Um, however, a very recent arrival to the United States, a very recent arrival to Florida, if we're looking at the community that she was most likely tied with, it's quite close to the area. And it could then indicate that she had had that connection and that maybe someone in the community knows her. Um, for examination also determined that she'd had an orthopedic procedure known as a Watson-Jones when she was 16 years old that was likely due to multiple sprained ankles pre-surgery. And she was also found to have periostitis on her right leg. Um, so... Eventually, this case was shown in a Greek crime show called Fosto Tonel. Don't 
come after me. I don't speak Greek. I would love to learn how to say that properly, though. And after this viewing, a woman came forward and said that the facial reconstruction looked like a girl that she had known named Constantina, who had attended a domestic help prep school, which included a two-year work contract in the United States or Australia. Constantino, after having completed her program, was sent to her practicum in the United States, and the other one was sent to Australia, so they ended up losing contact. However, the time that her that their work permit started was around the same time that the victim arrived in the States. Um, unfortunately, that's really the only information that there is out there at this time. It's been a very cold case, and not a lot of information has been provided just because there isn't any of currently available on public media that I have been able to find. Um, however, there have been racial, facial reconstructions done in 1980 and again in 2012 that I will be posting on the Instagram um, if anyone has any idea of who she might be. Um, so she would have been born around 1950 to 1947 and lived in Greece up until October, November of 1970. Um, I think the fact that this woman disappeared is like, and the, that no one has come forward claiming her is really unfortunate. There must have been someone who has known if it was this girl Constantina, one would hope that her family either in Greece or the family that she was working for in the States or her school would have come forward setting up, the sh like indicating that she had gone missing. However, there is no further information that has been released on this file as of this time. But like I said, I will be posting the facial reconstructions on our Instagram in the happenstance that anyone recognizes her. Now we will be going to The second case of today, which is Little Lord Fauntroy. Again, this is a pretty short case just because, first off, it's from 1921. And second of all, there has really been minimal information on this case. Um, previous speculations haven't been found to have any evidence. There's only really been like one or two, one significant theory that's emerged. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of detail since. Um, so this case is over... 100 years old so unfortunately the chance of us finding things out is pretty minimal but maybe if someone has a family legend that was passed on of a small child disappearing from their home or their family then maybe it could be connected so this case is known as little lord fontroy and and he was found on march 8th 1921 in wisconsin so on march 8th 1921 the body of a little boy was found floating in a pond near Lawhan Stone Company in Waukesha, Wisconsin. During the autopsy, he was determined to have been between five and seven years old with blonde hair, brown eyes, and a miss missing tooth from his lower jaw. He had been killed by blunt force trauma and might have been in the water for several months, as the water had previously been frozen until quite recently. He was found in a gray sweater, munsing underwear, or munsing underwear, black stockings, a blouse, and black patent shoes. The quality of the clothing seemed to point towards him coming from a wealthy or affluent family, which was a little bit of an uh, abnormality for the area that he was found. 
After nine days of lying unidentified in the funeral home, he was buried on March 17, 1921, in Prairie Home Cemetery due to funds raised by a mini Conrad from the same community. During the investigation, an employee of the Olahan Stone Company came forward and said that he had been approached by a couple who asked if he had seen a small boy. This had occurred a couple weeks before the body was found. The woman who was crying was wearing a red sweater and the man with her was silent but kept watching the pond where the boy was found. They shortly then after left in a Ford vehicle and have never been identified, nor has any further investigation on who that couple was been mentioned in reports. One theory emerged that the boy had been abducted by a wealthy family in another area, which is why identification had been so difficult. There was also speculation around an unknown woman in a heavy black veil who would regularly place flowers on his grave. This resulted in the belief that the woman knew his true identity, but she has also never been identified. When we look at actual theories for this case, the first one, the only major theory emerged in 1949 from a medical examiner in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He believed that the boy could be a child named Homer LeMay, who at the age of six disappeared around the same time that little Laurie Fauntleroy was found. Homer's father, Edmund LeMay, claimed that Homer had died in a vehicle accident in South America while in the care of family friends known as the the Nortons. However, no record of his death exists, and Edmund claimed he had learned of this through a South American newspaper, but this is also never proven. Which brings up very concerning questions about where Homer LeMay is and, like, the legitimacy of his father. Um, From research as well, Homer's mother had disappeared and Edmund had no information about where she went either. Um, And he's just very vague in his conversation with law enforcement, indicating some random South American newspaper. I've seen some reports that it occurred in Argentina. But I'm also concerned about who is letting their six-year-old child go to the other side of the planet with family friends. Um, And not seem particularly concerned to have received a newspaper clipping of his death. Like, why would you not repatriate the body, go there for the funeral, have something to indicate that he had passed away? Um, But unfortunately, that is the only case that is currently available or the only theory that's currently available for little Lord Fauntleroy. And for our last story of today, we are going to go to The Boy in the Box from Pennsylvania. So on February 25th, 1957, a young man went out to check his muskrat traps. Instead, he found the body of a young boy, fearing that he would be, fearing that reporting his discovery will lead to his traps being confiscated by law enforcement. He didn't report it. A few days later, a college student saw a rabbit alleged to have seen the rabbit running into the underbush. Concerned for the rabbit, due to the traps in the area, he stopped to investigate and found the body. He was also reluctant to contact the police, but did so after hearing of the disappearance of Mary Jane Barker. The body was found in the woods of Saskahina Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. He was naked but wrapped in a plaid blanket and laying in a cardboard box that previously contained a bassinet from J.C. Penney. He had recently had a buzz cut with hair still clinging to his body. 
There were visible signs of malnutrition and scars, possibly surgical, on his ankle and groin. Police opened the investigation on February 26, 1957. His fingerprints, fingerprints were taken, and although police were initially optimistic, eventually no one came forward to identify him. The autopsy confirmed that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. His body was seen to have been recently washed with trimmed nails, um, and he was covered in bruises, showing that he had faced extensive and intense abuse before his death. It was also noticed that he had been circumcised, which was not common practice in the United States until the 1970s. Initially, the case attracted massive attention in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. Sorry, initially, the case attracted massive attention in both Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. The Philadelphia Inquirer printed over 400,000 flyers with this photo. Constantly, constant searching of the area uncovered a blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and a white handkerchief with a letter G embroidered on it. However, these clues led nowhere. Police were so desperate that they also distributed a post-mortem photo of the boy. Despite the, fact, the lack of leads, three major theories emerged. The first theory was that um, was, it's called the foster home theory. So a foster home was located 2.5 kilometers from the disposal site of the boy. This theory emerged in the 60s when an individual named Remington Bristol, who was an employee of the medical examiner's office, reached out to a New Jersey psychic. The psychic led the cops directly to the foster home. Bristol attended, later attended an estate sale for the foster home where he found a bassinet that would have come from a similar box to that of the J.C. Penny box the child was found in. He also found blankets that were similar to, that, to those that wrapped the boy, and Bristol believed that the child was the son of the foster parent's daughter slash stepdaughter. And he had either died as an accident or on purpose and was hidden so that the daughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. Despite Bristol's belief in this theory, there is no actual evidence to confirm any of this. Um, with this theory, I'm kind of curious more so about who Remington Bristol really, like, his role is. Because everything I found has just indicated he was an employee of the ME office. And he seems to be going kind of rogue and just doing his own thing. Um, and unfortunately, I found that a lot of the information provided was really around um, very, like, speculative evidence. There's nothing actually, like, proving any of what he has said. The next theory is known as the woman known as Martha or M. In February 2002, a woman came forward with a very plausible story. She told police that in 1954, her abusive mother had purchased the boy, apparently named Jonathan, from his birth parents that summer. He was then severely, physically, and sexually abused for the next 2.5 years. One evening, the boy threw up his dinner of baked beans, resulting in a severe beating, including smashing his head into the floor. He was later given a bath where he drowned. These details appeared to be confirmed by the autopsy, which had actually found that there was baked beans in his stomach and water 
and that he had water-wrinkled fingers. Her mother then cruelly cut his hair, and Martha was forced to help dump his body. She indicated that during the dumping of the child's body, a male motorist had stopped to ask if they needed help, and Martha was made to stand in front of the license plate to block it from view. This account was actually confirmed by a conversation with a male witness who had come forward in 1957. However, questions around the theory emerged due to the fact that Martha had very significant mental illness, a very significant history of mental illness, and that her neighbors at the time who were regularly in her home dismissed this as being quote unquote ridiculous. Um, so unfortunately, it's very it's very plausible either way, right? We have an individual who obviously has her own trauma history that has had significant impact on her own life. And it could be very possible that this is the real story that we are hearing, that her mother had purchased this child. Um, on the other hand, it could be that Martha had some sort of psychosis or other disorder that created delusional or created memories for her in which she thought of the boy as having been part of her story in the past. Some other theories include that forensics artist Frank Bender believed that the boy may have been raised as a girl. This was suspected due to the haircut and his eyebrows appearing stylized. This could also contribute to the difficulty in identifying the boy. Um, the second theory was that he was suspected to be the son of carnival workers in 1961. As a 19... Um, as in 1961, Philadelphia detectives questioned Kenneth Dully and his wife Irene. They believed that the boy may have been one of their ten children. Kenneth was a carnival worker who traveled up and down the East Coast, and the Dullys had come to police attention when their daughter, seven-year-old Carol Ann, died from neglect, malnutrition, and exposure. The key concern here was also the fact that instead of burying Carol Ann, they wrapped her in a blanket and left her in a wooded area in Virginia. So very much drawing parallels to how the boy in the box was found. It was also discovered that seven of their 10 children died from neglect or malnutrition. However, it was then later determined that the boy in the box was not one of their children. Um, I have a lot of other questions about these individuals and how they ended up having 10 children and seven of them dying from neglect and malnutrition and no one stepped in. Um, I think that's a whole different conversation and possibly a whole different podcast on the topic because I think that surpasses like neglect and ends up more in the area of like active child abuse and murder. So in 1998, his body was exhumed and mitochondrial DNA was extracted. He was then reburied in Ivy Hill Cemetery in 1998. So on a positive side for the story, on November 30th, 2022, Philadelphia police released a statement saying that he had been identified and that as of December 8th, 2022, they will be having a further press conference to actually name the boy in the box, which I'm quite excited for. I think this is a horrific case and I'm really looking forward to having this poor child obtain his name back. And for us to get a true understanding of what occurred and hopefully have, you know, one, one case closed and hopefully he will also, the people who did this to him will also be brought to justice. Uh, the photos for all of these individuals, their um, 
facial reconstructions, the photos released by police will all be on our podcast Instagram page, which is when the world falls podcast underscores between all of the words. Um, and hopefully I will be back next week with a new episode on our next case, which will be what is that next? the forgotten, which is looking at missing persons. Um, I will also be doing three stories for that one, most likely, just because I think for me, especially, I want to provide you guys with the most clear information about the cases, what these individuals look like, their circumstances of disappearance, because the goal is to support you in learning about as many people as possible and hopefully keeping you guys on the lookout for these individuals, right? Um, again, my name is Teresa. Thank you for joining me. If you have any questions, concerns, commentaries, or queries, um, please send us an Instagram message and I will chat with you guys on the next time.